So I'm in the middle of a teaching series from the book of Ephesians. And today, for those of you that grew up in church, today might kind of smack up against some things that maybe you've heard because you're an American and you do churches in American. So uh, hang with me as we go through Ephesians chapter two today. In the early days of generations, uh, we had an associate pastor who worked for free and he loved gadgets. So one day I surprised him and I purchased a brand new iPod, which at the time was a $350 device. Now he was bowled over by this, okay? And, and I just wanted to say, thank you, I see you, I appreciate you. So that's, that was what was motivating me in this gift. And it kind of reminded me how Americans are when it comes to gifts. So Americans believe that the perfect gift is both spontaneous and comes with no strings attached. So in other words, if you're giving a gift because it's her birthday or it's your anniversary or it's Valentine's Day or it's Christmas, let's be honest, you had to, okay? It's not the same as if you show up with a gift random for no reason at all, surprise, right? So Americans love that and Americans love the fact that gifts should be, and the perfect gift does not have any strings attached. In other words, it's given so that the person can simply enjoy it, and there's no expectation that they will reciprocate at all, right? And that makes the perfect gift, which draws out why Americans despise gifts that come with strings. I don't know if you've ever been given a gift that has come with strings attached. The laughter says, yes, you have. So I had a friend who uh, her parents decided to treat the whole family, all the kids and grandkids to Disney World. And one of the things that grandma, the matriarch of the family wanted was a princess tea with all of her daughters and granddaughters in Cinderella's castle in Disney World. Now, I don't know if you know how this works, but that's muy money. <laughs> this is not a cheap thing to arrange for that. And so there was one problem. My friend's one daughter was not into princesses. She was into the Avengers. And the previous two Halloweens, she had gone as the Black Widow. Okay? Guess what happened? That young lady was told, you are going to put on the princess dress. You are going to go into that princess castle and you're going to have that princess tea with grandma. Why? Because that's... The whole, that's part and parcel of getting to come to Disney World. Thank you very much, right? Gifts with strings. Gifts with strings. Americans, I want to point out to you, are weird in our understanding of the perfect gift as having no strings. In the rest of the world, in Asia, in the Middle East, on the continent of Africa, gifts with strings is how life works. It's normal. No one gives a thought about it. Uh, Understanding that gifts come with the expectations of reciprocity is not new, by the way. The Apostle Paul, in his 13 letters in the New Testament, draws this out about God's gift of salvation and how God expects that gift to be reciprocated. Okay? And I want to unpack that today. But before that, I want to talk about Uganda. Okay? So in, in 2018, this man right here announced that he was going to have pulled up out of the ground 10 water pump wells that he had put in as a cabinet minister, elected cabinet minister in Uganda. 
And he was pulling them up and he was having them removed. Why? He had been voted out of office. And thank you very much. He was taking his water wells with him. Thank you. This is what he said to the press. Members of the Western press were horrified, right? Horrified by this. Patrick Okumu Ringa said this. Our people are not appreciative. All I wanted from them was votes. I have educated so many children and all they tell me is I have done nothing. And he gave those people those drinking wells and by golly, he expected their support in return. And when they didn't, he pulled up his wells. That happened in 2018. 2018, that's just five years ago, okay? So this is how things work in a large part of the world. And by the way, this is how things worked in ancient Persia, ancient Babylon, ancient Israel, and ancient Rome. Now, we don't have words for this in English because we're Americans. And what's the perfect gift? Spontaneous and no strings, right? Because you're Americans. I'm an American. That's, that's how we come to see gifts. But in the ancient world, in the biblical world of the Old and New Testament, that's not how it worked. Now, in their culture and in their language, they use this word friend. And so they would have said of Patrick here, uh, Patrick would have said of his constituents in Uganda, these are my friends. And they would have called him a friend of the people. But, but we don't have words in English, so we've had to make up some. And I want to share what those two words are. And the two words are patron and client. Patron and client. So we've invented these words in English to describe what happens in all these other cultures that doesn't happen here for us as Americans to the degree that it happens in other cultures. So the patron is the greater party. The patron is the person giving help. The patron is the person who receives loyalty in return. The client is the lesser party. The client is the one receiving help. And the client offers loyalty in return. So if I can illustrate how this might work in the, Apostles Paul, in the Apostle Paul's day, Allow me to do so. And I'm stealing this illustration, by the way, from a book called Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes, okay? So imagine for a moment ancient Ephesus, the context for which our letter is written. There's a man who lives in Ephesus named Diocles. Diocles' family made a lot of money from the gold mines outside of town. Diocles owns several estates throughout Macedonia. A few blocks from his house lives a man named Balin. Balin is a baker. Balin's father was a baker. Balin's father's father was a baker. You see how this works. No one ever came of age in the ancient world and thought, what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> Again, something new for us. One day, now, now Balin and all of the people of Ephesus who would also be bakers they worship one of the gods in the pantheon of gods was a god na goddess named Fornax, and Fornax was the goddess of the ovens. One day, however, for Balin, his bakery catches fire and everything is destroyed. Now, everyone in town who hears about this and knows about this immediately assumes Balin has done something to offend Fornax. It's Balin's fault that his, his bakery burned. Now, there are banks in Ephesus, but Balin isn't going to get a loan from them because, again, it's his fault the bakery burned, and two, he has no way to pay it back. 
So Balin shows up at the home of Diocles. Every morning outside of Diocles' home is a line of people who are there to express their gratitude to him. Diocles, thank you so much for the help you gave my family a few years ago. I'm just wondering is, do you need anything today? And that's what those people would be lined up to do outside of Diocles' home. Balin is in that line, and when it gets his turn to talk to Diocles, he lays out the scenario. My bakery's burned. My family's going to be destitute. And for no reason or reasons we can't even fathom, Diocles decides to help him. Now, Diocles could give him money, but more likely what would have happened is on the long line of friends with somebody who builds stuff, and Diocles would have said, well, actually, you can help me today. My friend Balin needs his bakery rebuilt. Would you do that? Oh, absolutely, right? And so Balin and Diocles are now in a relationship, a patron-client relationship. Now, Balin has responsibilities in this relationship. He's expected to be grateful, and he's expected to show up to Diocles' home every now and then and ask, is there anything you need? Is there anything I can help you with today? Okay? There are two words used in the Roman world to describe this relationship. They're famous words. You've probably heard these words before. The two words are grace and faith. Grace is what a patron gives a client. In fact, one of the translations for the Greek word charis is gift. Faith is what a client gives the patron in response, that kind of loyalty. Now, where have you heard these terms grace and faith before? Where have you heard them? Church, where else have you heard them? In the Bible. That's right, in the Bible. And Paul didn't just pick these terms out of nowhere for no reason, okay? The Apostle Paul is using the words grace and faith to explain the Christian's new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's the language of friendship or what we call patronage, using English words to try and make sense of it. So I want to read you Ephesians chapter 2, and we're just going to be camping out in two verses there, just two verses. Okay, Paul says this, and I'll put up my picture so you can see the book of Ephesians here. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his kindness and grace, uh, grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. And then the kicker verses. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us 
long ago. Now remember, in the book of Ephesians, in Paul's letter to Ephesians, he's trying to help them understand this apocalypto he's had, this, this apocalypse. In other words, on the road to Damascus, Paul, and what was hidden to him, hidden from him, has now been revealed. He sees Jesus for who Jesus is, the Messiah. And so, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul is kind of outlining what God has done for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been made alive. We've been raised with Christ, seated with Christ, and we've been created for good works. And then he says this in verses 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Here's what I want us Americans to realize. We read the Bible as Americans. We do. I do. I'm an American. It's how I read the Bible. Come on. <laughs> I can't help it. It's the air I breathe. It's the water I swim in. And so when I see that word gift, I tend to think of gift the way Americans think of gifts. And today I want you to kind of look out a little bit more and let Paul define what gift is for us and what that might look like. Okay? So I've put together a translation. This is your pastor's feeble Word-for-word word translation out of the Greek, okay? For by grace, there's that word, charis. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is God's gift. So I want to unpack that a little bit. There are those words, grace and faith. And the people hearing this letter read for the first time, they would have been like, oh, okay, Paul, I get it. God is like a patron and I'm like a client, only they wouldn't have used those words. God wants to be my friend and God wants me to be his friend. God wants to enter into a relationship with me, made possible through Jesus Christ. But again, as Americans, we have this thing where uh, any gift that comes with strings is tainted, but that's not how the apostle Paul saw it. So I want to look at a couple of places where he talks about this in some other letters. In Romans chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. There's that word grace, God's generosity, God's giving humanity something. And then in Romans 4, but people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of what? Their what? Faith in God who forgives sinners. Now, again, we tend to think primarily as faith is something kind of in our heads and believing certain things. But I want you to see that faith is more than that. It is relational. Okay? So let's keep going. I understand that since the Protestant Reformation, we've gotten part of grace smack dab right. The way pastors love to say it is grace is so cheap it's free. That's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, grace is getting something really awesome you don't deserve. Spot on. True. Absolutely true. But I want you to see the relational dynamic of it. To go back to the illustration from ancient Ephesus... Diocles wasn't obligated at all to help Balin. In the same way, God wasn't obligated at all to help you or me. But God did so anyway. He sent his one and only son 
to live the life that we should live and die the death that we deserve. Now, Paul makes an important distinction in this whole patron-client thing. Paul would say that for us, we're really no better and no different than any client in the ancient world. Sometimes we're grateful. Let's be honest. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we show up in God's house and we're like, what can I do for you? And sometimes we don't, we don't want to offer God anything or do, you know, do anything for God. We can be fickle. Uh, we can be unreliable. We're inconsistent. But if you read Paul carefully, Paul says, God's not like the typical patron of the first century world. And again, he wouldn't use that word. I'm just using it for us to understand this. Paul would say, God is so much better. That's Romans 5.8. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, we were treacherous, ungrateful clients, and God gave us a gift anyway, right? So God's gift of salvation, I want to suggest to you today, is given with an expectation of reciprocity. And we're going to see that in the last three chapters of Ephesians because Paul will say things like, stop stealing. You're in Christ Jesus now. Stop stealing. Uh, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Live a life that's filled with love. There's obligation baked into this new relationship with God. So Paul envisions communities of people who put their trust in God's ongoing patronage to them and who will become active members of God's household or oikos, okay? And we see this kind of reciprocity in a, in a verse, but it all kind of boils down to relationship. Diocles and Balin are in a new relationship. And that's the good news of what God is wanting to do through the person and work of Jesus Christ, enter into a new relationship, right? And so Americans do this thing where they're like, wait a minute, I thought salvation was a gift. And Paul says, yes, it is a gift. And there are strings attached to this gift. Can you be okay with that? Because that's how God rolls. That's how God rolls, okay? So let me ask... Um, Oh, I want to cover this one thing. We see this really clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. So if I can walk you through these two verses, you're going to see Paul's logic, how he thinks, okay? For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Okay, so Paul is saying, I don't deserve God's gift, God's grace. I don't deserve it. I was one of the people throwing these guys in jail. Like, I was there at the stoning of Stephen. I don't deserve this. But God poured out, and in the New Living Translation, it's his special favor. But guess what word is used? Grace. <laughs> God poured out his grace on me. And what is the result of this grace? I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. What? <laughs> See, for us Americans, we're like, that's crazy. That's crazy, but Paul sees no contradiction in that whatsoever. So I want to draw out what this means, but I want to ask a couple of questions first. Do you ever feel like you need to earn God's favor or grace? Do you ever feel like you need to earn God's favor or grace? Why do you think it's hard to accept grace as a gift? And then secondly, 
is it reasonable, given what we have Jesus saying, given what we have Paul saying, to think that God gives salvation and expects nothing in return? Is that reasonable? Okay? So let me take this to where you and I live. And if you haven't picked it up by now, <laughs> today's big idea is really simple. God's gifts have strings, and that's okay. <laughs> God's gifts have strings, and that's okay, because God gives amazingly good gifts. He does. Um, many pastors and church leaders will talk about the American church as having like a crisis of discipleship. And when they talk about that, one of the things they're articulating or they think they're seeing is lots of American churchgoers who do the whole, well, I'm saved, but there's no life change. They're not living differently than their non-Christian neighbor. And then they're not on mission with what Jesus is doing in the world. So these church leaders and, and theologians will be like, well, this is, this is wonkadoodle. This is wrong. And what I would say is I think one reason we're there is because we've not fully understood grace. So the Protestant Reformation was a great wake-up call in the history of the church because you had the church basically saying, well, you want to go do these horrible things? Give me some money, Sarah, and you can do that tomorrow. You're forgiven, no problem. And so there was baked into the culture, well, you got to earn your way with God. And the reformers came along and they rightly emphasized, no, you can't earn your way into God. That, that's not how this works. It's grace. It's a gift. And now 500 years later, I think we're probably due for another course correction in church history. We're due for another course correction. So that's, uh, I remember in the 1990s getting really mad at my old boss and mentor, Steve Pearson. He preached a sermon and he <laughs> defined grace this way. Grace is the power to do God's will. On Monday morning, I went into his office armed with all my Bible passages and I was like, duh, 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 duh. you're wrong, Steve. Duh, 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 duh. You don't understand grace. Duh, 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 duh. It's a gift, Steve. Duh, 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 duh. There's nothing in return, Steve. Duh, duh, duh. And he just smiled and took it. And you know what? These many years later, as it turns out, I think he's closer to Paul. He's closer to Paul than my Baptist upbringing was at the time. Okay? All right? One way to kind of get your brain around this is there's a difference between works-based faith and faith-based works. There's a difference between works-based faith and faith-based works. Uh, works-based faith is religion, and religion kills. It just kills everybody and everything. It's horrible. It's just this oppressive thing, and it's the oh, snap, I got to get my act together for God to love me, and, da, 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 and oh, I lost my job, and and the reason I lost my job is because I stopped tithing and God's punishing me and it's all this stuff woven and baked into that, this performance thing. Faith-based works is relationship. It's the vantage point of, I don't sweat where I stand with God. <coughs> Jesus took care of that. My standing with God is solid because of Jesus. And I'm so grateful for what he's done for me. I want to live a life that pleases him. And I know it's inconsistent. And I know it's imperfect, but I want to. That's relationship. You see the difference? Works-based faith versus faith-based work. So if you're here today and you're a believer, you've said yes to what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you've been made alive with Christ, and you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, as Paul says, I've got a couple of questions. Do you show up at your patron's house regularly with gratitude? 
And patron's house is not your prayer closet. That's the gathered communities of faith. Do you show up at your patron's house regularly? And then secondly, do you show up at your patron's house asking if God needs anything or wants anything from you? I've tried to think of the closest thing we have in America to this, and this is the only thing I could come up with. Imagine, for those of you that are 40 years old, that in 20 years' time, your best friend and roommate from college becomes president of the United States of America. Now, some things have happened or are going to happen in the next 20 years. They're going to hold some other offices, and you might have taken some time off work to campaign for them and stuff like that, but... When they ran for president, you took time of work, off of work and you campaigned for them. On your Facebook page, you were going on and on about how I know politics is bad and you, everybody's got opinions, but I'm telling you, my friend from college, they're the real deal and they want to make the country better and you should vote for them, right? Because they're your friend. Now, when that person gets elected, right, you now have something you didn't have before. I can't call up the White House and ask to speak for the president, but in that day, if that day would come for you, could you call the White House and ask to speak to the president, get to speak to the president? Yeah, you could. <laughs> you could. And if all of a sudden on your Facebook page you were dissing them and telling the world how awful they were and whatnot, would the president, your best friend from college, think of you as being disloyal? Yeah, they would, right? So it's the closest thing I can think of that comes to this patron-client thing. And I can, again, we just don't have anything in America that even resembles it. Grace and faith. Grace and faith speaks to a relationship. It's not just ideas about God. It's a relationship. And God has initiated a relationship with us by rescuing us from sin and death. And if we accept his grace, God expects that we will reciprocate uh, with faith. And it's not just Paul who says this. Um, I'll give you one little snippet from Jesus, and then we're going to sing. Uh, so this is from Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 46. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside. His mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who's my mother? And who are my brothers? I love the Jewish way of going about this. <laughs> who is my mother, right? Then he pointed to who? His disciples. Look, these are my brothers and my mother. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And he's using language of relationship. 